This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode 275 for Monday, October 8th, 2012. Isaac Newton. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos, where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? And happy uh, Canadian Thanksgiving to you. I'm, I, you have a Canadian husband, and so I'm sure you are made aware every year that, that this is the proper and true Thanksgiving and not the other one. So it's good. I hope you had turkey last night or tonight. I, I sadly was on a plane last oh, right. night, so so I, I had a sad ravioli. <laughs> Um, so I, I don't know if we had anything, I don't, we didn't think of anything to announce, so I don't think we will. Um, actually, you know what we should announce is just to remind people that uh, we record every episode of Astronomy Cast now as a live Google Plus Hangout. And if you want to join us and watch us record live and ask your questions, uh, we are, um, you can circle the Astronomy Cast page on Google Plus and then you'll get a notification when we're going to record. But normally record uh, Mondays at noon Pacific time, 3 Eastern, uh, do the math for all the other time zones. Cool. All right. Were well, you ready to go? I, I'm hoping. You always find something I'm not ready <laughs> for. Just just you wait. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, <laughs> let's go. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light, Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.8thlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8thlight.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. So Isaac Newton has been called the greatest and most influential scientist who ever lived. And that sounds about right. He unlocked our modern understanding of gravity and the laws of motion, dabbled in optics, philosophy, even alchemy. And he's also known to have a bit of a difficult personality. So let's find out everything we can about Isaac Newton. All right. So uh, so if you could like pick one discovery that Isaac Newton was most famous for. Gravity? I think it's it's probably a tie between gravity and calculus because more people have to learn calculus than remember gravity. That's true. So then, then who was this guy, and and where did he sort of come from? Well, so so the odd thing is that while he's most remembered as a scientist, he was a a a Brit who was eccentric, who was difficult to work with, who is generally believed to have Asperger's, and who wrote far more about Christian hermetics and occult and alchemy than he did about science. So it's just fascinating that a lot of what he did was based on trying to use science to to understand religion and use logic to translate the Bible. He was fluent in Hebrew, but it's his writing related to science that, that survives to the modern day. I always think of him like as like a Sheldon Cooper, I gotta say. 
I, I, I think that that's fairly accurate, but had Sheldon listened to his mother concerning religion? Although it's to say Newton uh, did, didn't believe in, in the Holy Trinity. He thought that worshiping Jesus was idolatry. So so while he was a, a Christian hermetic, he was also a heretic. And so he was just like a totally confusing dude. Yeah, and he did some pretty weird experiments. I, I hope we'll get to the one where he jammed a knitting needle in his eye to... Uh, <laughs> To, to see how optics worked. But, uh, but let's go back then. So where, so where did he come from? Where did he grow up and, and get his initial education? So, so he was born prematurely on Christmas Day in the old calendar, and his father died three months later. Um, he was born in Worthup by Collistworth in Lincolnshire, England, where they have long and difficult names. That's a good British name for a town. <laughs> it is. It is. So, so according to his mother, you could basically stick the poor guy in a mug upon his birth. He was quite small. And his father died a few months after he was born, and his mother remarried and then left poor young Newton to be raised by his grandmother. And according to all accounts, Newton never fully got on with his stepfather or particularly got on with his mother after that. So he had a difficult childhood. He did go to school, went to college, but then had to drop out of college when his mother's second husband passed away and she said he needed to come back and be a farmer. Except as one might imagine, uh, academics don't make the best farmers under many situations, especially not the physically science-bent ones. And, And eventually the university convinced his mother to let him go back to school. So he just had a very difficult beginning to his life, uh, but he was able to complete his, his education. He, he went on uh, to get a position at Cambridge that allowed him to both work for the university and study. Now, what, sorry, what time frame are we looking at here? I'm just trying to get some, get some context here. I mean, he was sort of in the, what, the 1700s? Uh, he was actually, well, he was in the 17th century. He was born in 1642. He died at the beginning of the 1700s so so his childhood was was all during the the 1600s he actually was overlapping with the uh, bubonic plague which one interesting thing to think about is the university shut down due to the plague at various times and it was while he was sent home to avoid dying of the plague as one hopes to do that he was able to accomplish a lot of his writing Right. Okay. And so he went, ended up at Cambridge, which was like the perfect place for, you know, somebody interested in these kinds of topics. Yeah. So, so he was able to, to, to finish his education while he, he was at Cambridge. And, and this was back in the days before you got a specific degree in physics, you got a specific degree in mathematics. It was pretty much a university degree. And while he w- was in university, he studied Descartes and Copernicus and all the great thinkers. And it was while he he was working on all of his studies that he started to figure out advanced mathematical theories in 1665 he developed the binomial theorem so so his his initial work was let's think about all of the great philosophers let's think about all of the great scientists and let's work on building mathematical treaties and and so he started with the binomial theorem and has been torturing math students ever since 
Yeah, I think I've been tortured by that one. <laughs> so, so, so pure math. So, so then how, you know, but I mean, he's, he's famous for so many different things. So, right. so how did his education take him further into that? Well, so, so the, the thing with, with uh, being an academic back then was it wasn't like today where you said, I want to grant to go do foo. I want to grant to go do foo. It was more a matter of you thought, sat, you thought, you worked, you exchanged letters. And, and so for him, he, he developed the binomial theory about the time that, that he was done with that and he had graduated. The university temporarily closed due to the Great Plague, uh, bubonic plague. Uh, this was its, its second massive sweep through England. And, and when he went home, it was while he was home that he started working on developing calculus and working in optics and thinking about the law of gravitation. So between 1665 and 1667, he was he was working from his house, something that, that I know you and I both enjoy getting to do. <laughs> yeah. But in those pre-internet days, that meant you were kind of trapped and and left on your own with your thoughts. But Newton was such that that he he died a virgin, according to all accounts. He never had a relationship with a woman. While he had some good friends who were men that he exchanged letters with, for the most part, he was a very solitary individual. So these years were highly productive for him. And when he re- returned to Cambridge as a fellow of Trinity University, it it was a chance for him to to continue working on. Although one of the things that he had to deal with was the fellows at that time were required to become ordained priests and and so newton had the fun of of trying to avoid becoming a a a priest who as i said he was a heretic and it's it's kind of hard to commit yourself to becoming a priest when you recognize you don't believe that that jesus christ is is part of the trinity and and while you're good with god uh you're not good with the modern views of the church so so he had an interesting time at that point and and eventually managed to avoid becoming a priest by becoming well the lucasian chair um which is the chair that's now held by stephen hawking so uh he sort of started a grand tradition at that point Okay, so, I mean, he had sort of quite an interesting life, as you said, you know, very reminiscent of sort of personality-wise of Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory, which I think is a, is a great model. Sheldon uh, had a girlfriend. Newton did not. <laughs> right. Um, uh, that's debatable. Uh, so, but during this time, very productive, you know, couple of decades, yeah. made massive improvements in all kinds of sciences and math. So I think we should really break down these different topics of study that he went through and sort of put them in, you know, some kind of order and really take a look at all the things that he, so, so what was, you know, you said he worked on binomial theory. What were some of the other really big and important groundbreaking areas of study that he worked on? And, you know, well, what was the process? The, the advancement of, of calculus, infinitesimal calculus, this is where you take the sum of all the littlest pieces and add them up to find the area under a curve, basically. He, he developed that in order to be able to advance his physics. And, and one of the, the interesting problems faced by people trying to put all of the pieces together is, is Newton didn't want to share or publish anything he didn't feel was absolutely perfect because 
he greatly feared being scorned or ridiculed. So while he developed calculus, most likely in the, the late 1660s, he didn't bother to get around to publishing it until the late 1680s. And this opened the door for Leibniz to be um, in a position to co-discover calculus and put his theories forward and try and claim that he was the developer of it. Luckily, the, the book Principia, which is, is much of Isaac Newton's theories on physics, clearly required him to have developed calculus. And he had other earlier books, one, a manuscript on the motion of bodies in orbit, that, that clearly also required some form of calculus to have been present as well in order for him to have come to the conclusions he came to. So it's now generally accepted that Newton developed it first, but what's interesting is he's Leibniz's notation for it because it's considered to just be the easier way to notate calculus. And this just comes back to this constant situation with the early scientists where, you know, in in order to do the kind of work that they wanted to do, they would have to invent the various pieces of the puzzle to be able to do it. And so you have the situation where in order to be able to do better, better math for gravity, he had to invent possibly the most important mathematics you know, mathematic invention in the last thousand years, you know, as a tool in the same way right. that Galileo had to invent a new way of a thermometer or, you know what I mean? That, that, that there was this, I don't know, there was almost like an expectation that if you were going to push the boundaries, not only were you going to have to push the boundaries in your science, but you were going to have to come up with the instruments and the technology and the methods. And, you know, I could imagine him going, well, I need a computer, so it's time to sit down and, you know, (laughs) invent silicon conductors, because that's what I got to do to be able to, I don't know, compute how I can turn lead into gold, you know? Yeah, it, it wasn't quite like that. But one of the, I think most reaching things that that Isaac Newton did in a certain way in a certain framework is he was such a perfectionist in what he did that when he finally did get around to sharing his different theories when he finally got around to publishing his results he did it in such a thorough manner and with such a concise language that the the style with which he wrote Principia is considered to be the best possible style that a scientist can use. So well, yes, he defined the calculus that that everything we do, unfortunately, relies on, or fortunately, depending on how you feel about uh, having to sit down and do mathematics. While he is is one of the early people to have sorted out many different things with optics, while he sorted out why Kepler's equations work, and we'll describe all of these in a moment, the way that he described these things it's not just used in physical sciences. It's not just used in mathematics. It's used across all of academia as a way to discuss scientific concepts. So he defined the language with which we use as professional scientists to communicate to one another. Wow, that's that's pretty deep. Uh, okay, so we've got calculus. Uh, what else? So, so binomial theory, calculus; those those were really the the big things for him when it when it comes to mathematics. He did lots of other things, but but those are are the big things that people walk away with. Optics is probably next. 
he he was the first person to really put together the pieces that white light the the light that comes out of incandescent light bulbs the the light that comes from the sun that when you focus it onto a wall you get a nice white circle um although we typically talk about the sun as being yellow but that's a complicated discussion white light he realized is actually just the combination, the additive combination of a variety of different colors. And by playing with prisms and lenses, he realized that you can use a prism to to diffuse all those different colors. And he realized that lenses in their own way use the same principles as that prism. And because of that, any telescope that's ever made that uses lenses is always going to be dividing all of that white light out into all of its individual colors. This is something called chromatic aberration. And in order to prove that he was right, he developed a new type of telescope that we call the Newtonian telescope that uses a reflecting mirror. And and for him, the idea wasn't so much to build the better telescope, but to show that lenses refract light into all of its different colors, whereas mirrors simply reflect the beams. For him, this was, he he thought of, well, what we now call photons as, as corpuscles, so it was the corpuscular theory. Today, we recognize that light is both particles and waves, but he was one of the early people saying it's particles, and here's how you treat it mathematically as particles, and here's how mirrors don't care what color those particles are. So that that was kind of a creepy, awesome modern thing. And so, what's the sort of darning needle in his eyeball story? So, so I have to admit that I'm completely grossed out by eyeballs. So, any reference I had of that in my head had been blocked out until you brought it back up at the beginning of the show. Oh, really? Um, okay, all right. So, well, so I, if if I recall, <laughs> then um, he he wanted to see how the light, how the eyeball distorted light how it acts as a lens and so he 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 took a need, knitting needle and he kind of jammed it i is gonna squeak you out yes. okay wait. <laughs> knitting needle Google squeezed, it. His, squeezed, squeezed his eyeball around a bit and uh and and took a look at how it um affected the light and how it changed his vision and uh yuck you know pr- yuck you know, nearly blinded himself. So yeah, I know. Yeah. Go ahead. Google the story. Uh, Yeah. But it's the the kind of thing that would occur to him. He's just like, well, I got to figure this out. And I am the, uh, I am the closest human around. So let's get uh, yeah. Let's perform the experiment. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I've learned something new about you. Yeah, yeah, I, I can't even watch with people eyeballs. put contacts in. I am totally no, I, squeed out by eyeballs. No, I've never put a contact lens in. I can't even imagine doing it. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, okay, well let's, let's let's move on then, so we can move past optics. So he he so again, you know, figured out like prisms, rainbows, light breaking right. up, combining again. Okay, also and, and very so, important. So in 1675, he, he published his hypothesis on light, um, putting forward his ideas in written form, and uh, talked about uh, the idea of the ether being something that transmitted it. Luckily, it turns out light doesn't need any such thing. It's quite happy to go through vacuum. And uh, it, what's interesting is he he worked with so many other scientists over the year. He's he worked with Hooke, with Henry Moore, and and he started thinking about light in terms of alchemy, and and 
At one point, he actually replaced the ether in his ideas with occult forces. And and so occasionally he wandered away from mathematical (laughs) reality and tried to use science to to prove occult ideas, which is is kind of something that that most people don't learn. That's hilarious. I wonder how much. But I, but I guess the question is like back in that time, when you think about their line of thinking was, you know, was the occult just the the occult was absolutely true. Alchemy was true. And so and so it was perfectly reasonable to use your logic and your reason and your experiments to try and understand these these, you know, but that the that the. I don't know that the occult or the alchemy was, but, yeah, it was all just the same. You know what I he, mean? And that, he actually took it further than others. This is why he was so afraid of, of being accused of being a heretic. And he never talked to people about his beliefs. He did have a lot of writing that went unpublished. And, and so he, this wasn't mainstream. John Maynard Keyes actually wrote that Newton was the first of the age of reason but the last of the magicians. And and so so here you have the, this man of science, but he he wasn't actually a man of science. He in his head, it was the occult, it was religion, it was alchemy. Um, and he was simply trying to prove it with reason as the age of reason was getting started. Hmm. This wasn't mainstream. He was the guy on the radio in the middle of the night, except he had the math to back up what he said. But I, but I wonder if, he, like, putting it into the context context of the time, like, no, were the he things was still that a he crazy was, dude. He was still a crazy. Okay, so it's not like the things that he was talking about and the and the topics that he wanted to go into were well accepted and regarded, and a lot of people shared his beliefs. No, he was he put people off and they were wondering why that's all he wanted to talk about. And they, had all, they had it's, all it's more already a, moved on. Right. It's, it's more a matter of, he did all of this work, all of this writing. He, he even traveled around trying to find meaning in the architecture of buildings in the old world, going down to Greece and Rome and uh, studying the tomb of Solomon. And, and this for the most part was all kept secret because he, he knew it wasn't normal. Normal. It, it's sort of like he worked so hard to to avoid becoming a priest because he knew his ideas weren't normal. So he's the crazy person who's self-aware that he's crazy and, and didn't publish most of his work. It was kept in letters and documents that came out after his death. Um, for the most part, he, he refrained in what he published to complete it completed ideas so this is where his principia of physics his optics on well optics were complete ideas that he published as a whole but he could never reach completion on his occult ideas so those didn't get released on the public luckily it might have had devastating effects on his career and he knew that Okay, so so we've got all his, his work into the into the optics and stuff, but I guess we're missing sort of the or the next logical step here is the is the thing we talked about right at the beginning, which is his incredible work on gravity. So, what was the concept of gravity before Newton had a think about it? Uh, 
it, it wasn't so much that it existed. I we had Kepler's laws, but the idea of forces didn't exist. That that came about from Newton's work, and and so starting in in 1679, he started thinking about celestial mechanics. He started trying to understand what caused Kepler's laws. And while he was working on all of this, the the ideas started to build. He started putting together his theories of motion, equations of motion, kinematic equations as we refer to them today, depending on what book you set pick up. And and it all started to come together as a whole. And this this is where his book Principia came came together, which was published in 1687. So he finally pulled all the pieces together in this one, it's still considered to be perhaps the best written science book of all time. Um, He basically sat down and put all the pieces together into a whole that we now call physics one in university, where, where you start with, well, here are the equations of motion. Okay, where do the equations of motion come from? Well, you have forces acting. Well, what's the force that's acting on the moon, on objects that are falling? Well, that's gravity. And it's this beautiful, crystal clear notion once you add force and once you're willing to admit that, well, maybe there's this invisible force pulling objects together and, and, well, since things fall it was easy to follow this through to its end. And it's just this beautiful, clean-cut theory that people angst over far too much. Now, what about this whole concept of the apple falling? See, that that one's argued about whether or not it's apocryphal or just an analogy he told. So most people think it probably never happened and it was just a convenient way to explain things. But the, but the idea is, you know, an apple. He saw an apple falling and then... So, so the story goes that, that he saw an apple falling, he looked up, saw the moon, realized that the moon is falling as well, but the way it's falling is it's constantly missing the Earth and just curving around our planet. And this is something that we've talked about in our own astronomy cast on gravity. Right, right. It's this concept that if you had a cannon and you shot it sideways fast enough... Um, it would eventually just go into orbit around the Earth, that it would just keep falling further and further from where it was shot until it was, if you shot it fast enough, it would just be, it would go into orbit. And it still is falling, but it's also falling at the same amount of uh, speed, I guess, that it's, you know, moving around the Earth as well. And so it just keeps going into orbit. And, but that's a, I mean, that's a stunning recognize you know recognition to kind of kind of see the apple fall and kind of go huh the the apple and the moon that's the same thing and that's you know whether you say it's apocryphal that's the the way he described it in the i think it's the principia anyway um but that's the way he described it right was to say that they're all just falling that it's all forces and it's all the same thing and and he did this when he was in his 40s so so he accomplished mathematics, geometry, binomial theorem, he did binomial theorem while still in university, gravity, all before his 40s. And he still went on to have even more of a diverse career. He went on to head up the the Royal Mint, where he was responsible for investigating a large number of um, uh, forged coins and doing all of the detailed investigations. And and he was someone who just couldn't leave a, a mystery uninvestigated, whether that mystery be what is it that causes a prism to to break up light to what is it that uh well 
what what how was it that the, all of these coins coins were forged? He he estimated at one point that twenty percent of the coins that were swapped out in the Great Recoinage of 1696 were actually counterfeit coins, and counterfeiting was high treason. So um, yeah, he had a lot of investigating to do that led to people being drawn and quartered. Um, so his his um, Heritage also includes causing people to be killed. Right. So we've got gravity. We've got uh, his work on the Royal Mint. We've got his chair, what, at Cambridge, right? Yeah. Cambridge. Yeah. Um, and this is, isn't this the chair that Stephen Hawking's holds yes. now? Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, said that at the that. beginning. Yeah, right. Um, so it's, I mean, a long and you know, long history after, after his. So, so okay, so he does gra- work in gravity. He's working at the Mint. Anything left? Well, he lived into his 80s, and what's interesting is uh, he lived this long and fruitful life where he was... once, once he reached adulthood, he he lived that academic's life where where you stay in the fellows' halls in the university and you exchange letters with others, and he moved in amazing circles, knowing Locke and Voltaire, um, and and. Interestingly enough, he had a niece who was stunningly beautiful and uh, is is one of the ones who ended up with all of his papers later. And, and there's letters exchanged where he showed that he wasn't always a cold-hearted Aspergery scientist, but he actually wrote of his love to her in, in friendly uncle love, nothing, nothing skeezy or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's because of this relationship with his niece that so many of his papers were able to be um, well carried into the future. And so he say he lived in his 80s. Where did he die? Um, he died in England. He, he died while still working at the university. And uh, I'm trying to think, isn't, wasn't his grave part of, the, um, uh, part of that awful Dan Brown book? Yeah, that's true. But I don't, I don't know if any of that was... Uh, uh, at all betrayed and yeah true yeah yeah cool well what a what a great story and what and what a great man and what a weird man yeah exactly you have to keep in context the weirdness which does show yeah occasionally you do have to listen to the crazy crackpot people who are making their own shit up because if they use math they could be right but if they don't use math it just ignore them Right. I, I always, I sort of think about it like our forum, you know, like yeah. he's the kind of person who we would give him 30 days on our forum and then we would not let him propose his ideas anymore. So, so that he what, turned what out to be, turned out about, to be right. Yeah. So, so what Fraser's talking about is the Bad Astronomy Universe Today forums that are hosted on CosmoQuest.org. And there's a, um, part of the forum where people can present their their own alternative theories of reality and uh, they have 30 days to be interrogated by the community and if they can match all of the questions well then they're allowed to continue talking about their theory and hopefully moving it forward and changing science um so far no one succeeded yeah it hasn't happened yet no no and then that's it 30 days and then the conversation is closed and they don't get to talk about it again so um Cool. Well, thank you very much, Pamela. And I think we're hoping to do this as a two-parter. Next week, we're going to talk about the XMM Newton Telescope, which was yes. uh, based on his name. So, uh, the way we, that's the way we roll. So, we'll see you. Uh, we'll see you all next week. This has been Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts-based journey through the cosmos. Show notes and transcripts for every episode are available on our website. Check it out at astronomycast.com. 
You can send us any comments, questions, or feedback to info at astronomycast.com. We read every email. The show is a nonprofit educational resource provided by Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. We're supported through the kind donations of listeners like you. If you enjoy AstronomyCast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax-deductible for U.S. taxpayers. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend it to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Music is provided by Travis Searle. The show was edited by Preston Gibson. Astronomy Cast is produced at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, with generous support from Universe Today.